Welcome to the Well-Season Librarian Podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 12. Today I'm talking to journalist Peter Sussman, who has written two books, Committing Journalism and his second book, Decca, The Letters of Jessica Mitford. Uh, Peter is an artist here in the San Francisco Bay Area locally, and he was a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle for several years. And I'm just going to go ahead and go into the conversation with uh, journalist and author Peter Sussman. Welcome to the Well Season Podcast. My name is Dean Jones and I'm the Well Season Librarian. And today I am talking with author and artist Peter Sussman. Peter, thank you for being on the program. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, Peter, for our listeners who are not familiar with your background, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm a born Easterner, but but I've lived here since well for for more for almost sixty years, I guess. Um, and I'm Berkeleyan. I worked for thirty years for the Chronicle as an editor in various capacities, and then left and did some freelance and contract writing and and wrote two books one co-authored with a prison writer and the other uh, a, a book of letters which we'll talk about later and you use the word artist that's a new something new for me i um discovered photography in the last decade or two and we have become increasingly passionate about it, and it's it's a big part of who I am now. I'm also I don't know what scope you have for this question, but I'm also a, a husband, a father, or grandfather, and um, and I've been involved also in a lot of civil liberties and social justice issues. Now, when you work for the San Francisco Chronicle, you held a number of editing positions. Can you tell us about some of them? Yeah, I started out on the copy desk, which is where one writes the headlines, captions, and does the close-up editing, trimming stories that need, that won't fit, um, asking questions. I went from there to the news desk, essentially assistant news editor. And at that time at the Chronicle, there were two assistant news editors who split up the paper one took the national and world pages, the other took the local pages and um, decided what would run, how, how the stories would look, drew out the pages on a, what's called the dummy sheet, a, a grid of the paper, uh, which then went to the printers, decided what headlines to give, what stories to run with each other, decided what pictures to run and crop. Um, and just assembled the whole paper, um, saw what we had room for on any particular day. And then, and occasionally I was the news editor, which involved page one and general oversight. And then after a number of years doing that, I went to the Sunday sections and edited for a year, a, a section, old section called This World uh, general interest magazine uh, on newsprint and after that to Sunday Punch for 10 years which was a, a quite a kind of quirky Sunday section of commentary essays humor columns and and editorial and so forth and left there after 30 years at the Chronicle I worked in newspapers myself, and I know that you're always working against deadline, multiple deadlines usually, and yes. it's very stressful. Did you find it to be a very stressful environment? It was tremendously stressful, and and um, I don't. It's it's a young person's game. You've got to be, yeah. you've got to be adaptable. I was there for, you know, essentially I was the funnel point in the process of, when I was on the news desk, so that all the stories from either well, usually from the city desk, which meant all the local and metropolitan stories would funnel through me and then out to the um, to the various copy editors. And if I thought a story was worth page one, I would kick it over to the news editor. 
So every story had to pass through me. And they, in those days, we, it wasn't an electronic setup. It was paper. So they kept stories that were coming on deadline were being written as I was putting them through the editing process, which meant that they arrived page by page. And I had to keep track of each page yep. of each story, each minute. And um, you're right, there were several editions. The first one we were done with by uh, dinner time, and that went to oh, Northern California, Southern Oregon, Tahoe by truck. Um, and then there was another major edition, there were minor editions in between. There was a major edition about 1030 at night. Uh, we, we were finished with the 10, about 10, 30, 11. That was, uh, went to most of the homes and around the Bay area. And then later editions as news developed, um, were, what were called chasers. Um, and that those went to San Francisco downtown and home and so yeah, it was tremendously stressful. You were always on your feet. You were weighing one story against another, see which one you'd give better play to. Um, but you know, I learned a tremendous amount about um, integrating different stories and facets, which is what we do in a life. We have a lot of storylines that we're working on at once. I learned specifically in relation to photography i learned how to handle photos and those these days that's all done by a photo editor yeah right. and in my day it was came directly from the head photographer to my desk and i decided whether to run it and how so i learned how to crop a photo how to how to uh, treat it i mean story photos tell stories and if you um position them in, in a certain, if you, if you crop them in one way, you're telling a different story than if you crop it another way. It depends on how much background you include and so forth. We've all learned this subsequently at the Trump um, uh, inauguration when he took issue with the photos that were run saying they were um, misleading because they showed so much empty space. Right. And in fact, that's the way those photos are usually taken. And there was a lot of empty space, but he would have preferred a tighter crop that yeah. didn't show the empty spaces. So you're telling different stories depending on how you crop a photo. So I did learn uh, almost inadvertently, you know, without realizing I was learning. Uh, I learned a lot about photography there. But um, by and large, I was, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It was a powerful job because, you know, I was determining what people read and what emphasis it had, whether it was top of the page with a large headline or down below with a smaller one, which stories were with each other because the stories reverberate on a page. And you, if you see several, say, police shootings on the same page, you may get a different impression than if you see them scattered in different sections of the paper. So um, you, you were helping shape the world for people every day and it was stressful but it was also often exhilarating do you what do you think of um i grew up with newspapers and i have a great love and affection for newspapers and journalism and journalists i i follow many journalists throughout the years and i really miss being able to get my news from that and nowadays it seems like everything is coming from little micro reporting on social media. What, what you've seen, I think, a great shift in your lifetime. What do you think of the current way we get our news from little microbytes on uh, social media? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, we, when I grew up, we, my parents subscribed to, I think, four newspapers. Two, yeah. two were from, from my town of about 15,000. Two were... Um, New York papers, one which my father took with him to work and read on the train, and my, the other stayed home with my mother. New York Times and the Herald Tribune, and uh, then there was a, a daily afternoon regional paper, Newsday. Yep. And so those were all the newspapers, not to mention the magazines. 
uh, entirely different now. I still am I'm the last person to subscribe to the Chronicle <laughs> um, in paper, but I also check it online and, and I get my information from many news sources. And I worry a lot about news literacy because there are many wonderful silos of information around the web, including, you know, you can find sites on economics, on, on politics, Politico or The Hill, or um, investigative journalism. And there are all kinds of wonderful sites, but there are all kinds of, but anyone can be a publisher. That's the name of the game. And yeah. so um, the, I worry about news literacy. I worry that, and we've seen the effects with, among other things, the Trump presidency of people getting their information and not being un, not understanding how to interpret it or how to um, what its credibility or, or um, trustworthiness is. So I worry a lot about that. Trust, I think these days is a very important issue in journalism, uh, credibility. And there are efforts underway, one by a friend of mine called the Trust Project to, um, to evaluate different um, outlets and in, in terms of reliability but those are tricky too you, yeah you know every site has a spin and spin is legitimate i mean thomas Paine was hardly a um objective reporter but um yeah. but we and we do have freedom of the press and it's wonderful but we also have to journalists have to discipline themselves as well and i've done a lot of work with journalism ethics uh, yeah. In in that area, I was on the ethics committee for many years of the Society of Professional Journalists and worked worked to um, hone the the ethical assumptions of, that journalists operate with, and that I hope readers judge them by. Yeah, but it, it we need to teach news literacy. We need to teach that anyone can say anything they want on the web and. Um, you know, this, some of the stuff is, we talk about fake news, some of it is just um, crazy um, conspiracy theories, this, you know, Q, which no one even, they're, they're doing things, they're doing like making life and death decisions based on something that they don't even know who comes from someone they don't even know who, Q, someone named Q, maybe, who may or may not exist. And um, maybe schizophrenic, who knows? He may be completely off his mind, but you you get a kind of a um, cluster response and people reinforce each other's enthusiasm and it just gets out of hand that these things are so, unre so removed from any normal evaluative process, it's crazy. But that's determining our politics, among other things. So yes, it's a terribly important problem. And I think we all need to become skilled news consumers. And maybe this is this kind of thing is, um, you know, how what do you trust online ought to be and, and how do you evaluate it ought to be part of every curriculum, just the way history and and math and science are. While you're at the uh, Chronicle, you co-authored your first book, Committing Journalism, The Prison Writings of Red Hog, with a prison writer named Dennis M. Martin. And uh, how did you come to write this book? And how did yeah, you get to meet up Meet up with Martin? Danny was his name, not Dennis. Danny Martin. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so it was published just before I left the Chronicle in 1993, late 93. Um, Danny's... Um, letters came to me. He was a, I mean, his articles. He was a, a bank robber and a, um, over many years, and a lifelong heroin addict who grew up in the Central Valley in a poor area among what we sometimes refer to as Oki population around yeah. near Fresno. And um, dropout high school dropout and was on um 
drugs of some kind most of his life and in and out of prison all his life um, until the end and he until almost the end a few years before he died and he um had always he was an amazing guy he had always wanted i learned all this later well let me just start with the, what happened he submitted a letter to me in 1986 a letter i say a letter a, a, a submission for publication in the section i edited called sunday punch and he he submitted this article about aids in prison and at that time aids was a new thing no one had thought about the implications for prisoners where they were living close together with all the risk factors like shared needle use and right um sex and so forth um and so they there it was a epidemic within the prison people were dying the prison didn't know how to deal with it they kept people together they the prisoners had no guidance and they felt abandoned they felt they were they were abandoned to die there and Danny wrote an article just to alert the world to what was going on. There was the first article I'd seen on AIDS in prison. It made sense just the way um, pandemic and a cruise ship makes sense, but no one had commented on it. And so this was this um, population that really didn't have much communication with the outside world. And I had always been interested in, in publishing and I made this a kind of hallmark of the section I edited, publishing viewpoints and voices that were out of the mainstream that we just don't hear about, that don't have a voice, they're voiceless. And so I was predisposed to that sort of thing. But um, usually when prisoners write articles they're, they're, and submit them to papers, they are self-justifying. I didn't do the crime or whatever, or they are um, just crazed writings of someone who's mentally ill. So you, you'll get page after page after page after page of small handwriting gibberish. Right. And so those are the things I usually get. This was articulate, beautifully written. And I uh, checked it out with our, and by the way, this was at a time when no one had thought, I mentioned that no one had thought about AIDS in prison, but it was like six months later that Newsweek had a cover story on AIDS in prison. So it was that far in advance of the curve. And I, it was beautifully written. I, I was stunned. It came from a federal prisoner in Lompoc, California. That's all I knew, Lompoc uh, Penitentiary. I checked it out with our AIDS reporter, um, Randy Schultz celebrated AIDS reporter and um, he was as impressed with it as I was and you know, just to make sure it was technically correct and so forth and um, and then I published it and the readers became were very excited about it it was you know an authentic voice from inside the prison Danny had never published anything before had never submitted anything before and he wrote um, follow-up letter saying um gee, that was a wonderful experience. Um, do you mind if I send you other stories? I said, no, not at all. Um, I will evaluate each of them on their own merits as I do any freelance article and um, they'll be treated like any freelance article. So some I may accept, some I may reject, some I may edit, but um, I'd be happy to hear more from you. And let's start a string of, I think, close to 50 articles that he sent me over a number of years. Wow. And the readers were very supportive. They were, they loved here. I used to get calls saying, is there going to be anything, you know, before I buy the paper, is there going to be anything by that prisoner in this coming week's Sunday punch? Um, and then um, after two years of doing this, oh, I finally decided to meet him. Um, he, we, our names were put together and LA Times did a piece on what we were doing. Um, and I hadn't, wasn't prepared for that. I'm, I was just publishing his article. I wasn't prepared for the fact that this was becoming a phenomenon. Um, and and I, um, so I, I went down after a year of his writing for me, I think it was, I went 
to meet him in person. I flew down to Santa Barbara. And um, we had a nice visit. And in the course of the visit, he said, there's been a lot of tension in this prison because of things that the administration is doing mainly to piss off the um, prisoners and exercise control and or demonstrate that they are in control. And it's causing a lot of resentment. And that sort of thing usually often leads to riots. Right. Why do you have to wait until a riot occurs to deliver your grievances to the press, which prisoners always point. do? Yeah. Why can't you talk about them in advance? I said, you can. Write it up for me. Tell me what's going on. He wrote that article. I published it. And he was immediately sent to the hole. Now, Danny is, was a very realistic guy, and he understood that this was a possibility. Um, so he had arranged for some another prisoner to give, call me collect. I always had to hear from him collect. Um, he said, if you get a call from someone named such and such, uh, it means I'm in trouble for my writing. So I was called by this person, and I immediately uh, went to work um, trying to protect him and to find out what was going on. He was incommunicado until a few days later, I received a, a mail, mail which, was, which he could get out because it was sent media mail, which is um, un, unread, unopened, and it's labeled media mail, uh, which is the same kind of category as lawyer mail. Right. And, um, he said, I've just got this stub of the pen, of a pencil that some prison staffer has given me. I, I can't, uh, some um, inmate has given me, I, I can't communicate with you in any way, but this is just to alert you. Meantime, I had been trying to protect him by making, publicizing the fact that he'd been put in the hole for a story that I had chosen to run. Basically, he was being punished for something I did. Jesus. And that's a violation of freedom of the press. And it's obviously very dangerous for the prisoner himself who could be punished severely for it. And um, but I wanted to protect him. And the best way I knew to protect him was to publicize it. So I I did um, alert a number of news outlets and the Chronicle itself. And they started doing stories on it. Um, next morning, I was out on a morning run and um, a neighbor who was a lawyer um, was out and I said to him, hey, um, I'm just, I, how do I stand legally? I, you know, I've just, um, this is what's going on. And I've, I've declared full-throatedly that this is a violation of the First Amendment. And, um, but I don't know all the case law with the First Amendment. He said, um, oh, it's very interesting and so forth. And then when I got home from my run, he was on the phone and he said, um, I've read the story now and you have a hell of a case. Um, this is important. Um, it, I can convince my firm to um, represent Danny pro bono. Um, are you interested? And I said, absolutely. I'm going to protect them. So we already had a, a attorney and we filed a suit. Uh, oh, and then the prisoners had all complained because they were outraged. They they had been so proud of what Danny was doing. All the prisoners at other prisons were passing the story from cell to cell. The stories from cell to cell every time he wrote. And then some I heard one report that they would stash it behind the phone where anyone could, any of the prisoners could find it and return it like a, a one of these um, street side libraries these days. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, it was a it was a phenomenon within prisons because they had a voice. Someone was listening to them. They, the stories were not, by and large, earth shattering. They were mostly just about life inside prison. And um, and I had heard nothing from the prison authorities for the first year. And and in fact, one of the stories which he had written, which was. Um, about guards had been so favorably re received that we were told that the guards had posted it in their break room. Um, so they were excited about it. Everyone knew about it at the prison and, and it, was, it was useful. And Danny's article about guards was not a, 
confrontational thing. He basically said that they're as trapped by their role in this prison as we are as prisoners. Yeah. And um, so anyhow, he was under pressure. He was released from solitary confinement and began to write and wrote with me and wrote and then edited with me a article on what happened to him, which um, is an example of how things work in prisons when yeah. someone speaks out on injustices. And that article, we feared we'd get him transferred or otherwise punished because what the prison likes to do is federal prisons like to take troublesome prisoners or ones they considered troublesome and pass them from prison to prison in um, quick succession so that they takes them a while to gain their phone privileges and everything else and arrive in a new prison and for people to know where they are and they basically try and lose them in the system right uh, the prisoners refer to it as the merry-go-round or bus therapy where you're sent from prison to prison. Yeah. So Danny was fearful of this and he alerted us that this is what they'll probably be doing. Uh, I, The ACLU was involved because all the prisoners had complained to the ACLU and they called me and offered representation. So we already had um, two attorneys, my neighbor and the ACLU attorney. And then we wanted to get the Chronicle involved because they were um, the institution that was that published the story and got punished for it, uh, and for which he, the the writer got punished, um, and we didn't hear from them at first, and we we wrote up the lawsuit to protect his First Amendment rights and the rights of our readers, and to read what you know he had to say, and as a result, um, the Chronicle did decide to join, so we now had a third attorney. So it became wow. a major legal case and drew national attention. And at the first hearing, the judge, we had said they're going to move him any day and try and hide him. And the judge um, said, OK, uh, let me call a 7 a.m. court hearing um, just to forestall this if that's what they have in mind. At the hearing, he asked the Department of Corrections, I mean, the Federal Bureau of Prisons attorney, if they were indeed going to move him. And and the attorney said, yes. And judge said, where? And he said, well, first to Phoenix. <laughs> and so everything Danny said was confirmed. They were going to try and lose him in the system by busing him around the country. Uh, and the, the judge asked the attorney, when will this transfer take, take place? And the attorney said, this morning. So the judge said, all right, you can transfer him to Phoenix, but he stays there and um, until the end of this court case. And that at least stabilized him and allowed him to continue writing. And um, meantime, when he arrived at Phoenix, there had been enough stories nationally that the Phoenix reporters were all waiting at the gate to interview him when he arrived, right. which was exactly what they were trying to avoid. They were trying right. to hide him. And the first um, first reporter who got into him from a Phoenix paper said, I think it was the Arizona Republic said, um, you're a bank robber. What right do you have to write for a newspaper? And Danny replied, according to his uh, story, I committed bank robbery and I was sent to prison and that was right. And then I committed journalism and I was sent to the hole and that was wrong. That became the title of our book, Committing Journalism. So um, this continued, it was a long court case. There were ups and downs. Ultimately, they, um, when, when, a, when a court hearing went against them at the appeals level, they, the Federal Bureau of Prisons quickly went to a judge and said, wait a minute, the cold case is moot. They didn't want it decided on the basis of that hearing because it, was clear clear that Danny was not guilty of any of the charges. So they basically wiped out the case and released him on parole. Oh, wow. And uh, just to, to, to get rid of the case. 
uh, he'd been in prison for, I don't know, in that stretch, maybe a decade. Um, and then this was all quickly done. As soon as they decided to, as soon as they learned what went on at the court hearing, court hearing was a you know travesty of justice. I mean, they it was clear that this was a First Amendment violation, that prisoners are punished for writing in the press, but not for writing other things. So it's specifically related to news, the news media, which are mentioned in the regulations that he, he they cited. And so it was a clear violation of First Amendment. Anytime you have a law that applies only to the news media to suppress news, um, that's illegal under the Constitution. And so that's the, the case kind of frittered out over the years um, with that resolution. And ultimately, Danny was released. He went back a few times um, for minor parole violations. You, usually drugs as anyone knows who's involved in this it's a a lifelong disease yeah and um ultimately got out and was living on his own in alabama and enjoying his family his grandchildren and when he died at the age of 73 or something a few years ago This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit the website at www.chnorcal.org. We also have the link on the bio. Now, your second book was Decca, The Letters of Jessica Mitford. And this is the one that I had heard of you from when it came out, because it was a very popular book. Can we talk about this book a little bit and how you became, how you came to work on it? Sure. I had known Jessica Mitford. Let me just first say who Jessica Mitford was, because a lot right. of people don't know her. She lived in Oakland, um, right at the Berkeley border on Regent Street, um, a few blocks from where I live. And she um, was born a, a, an aristocrat, the daughter of Lord and Lady Reedsdale in England, um, on an estate with a summer house, in the whole thing, with a townhouse and a summer house. His father was in the House of Lords. Um, and he was a crusty old character. These were real old English characters. And they had a quirky, oh, she had six sisters. Right. Um, and one brother, and they were raised, the sisters were not allowed to go to schools because girls were taught at home. Right. And um, so received minimal education. And they were raised by this crusty Earl Reed, Lord Reedsdale. And, um, they, but each of them became well known in her own way. Two of them, two, excuse me, two of them during World War II became notorious fascists. One, right. one was married to Sir Oswald Mosley, had an affair for years with, and then married Sir Oswald Mosley when his wife died. And uh, she was, um, um, a friend of Hitler, and um, as many of the English aristocracy was, and had spent time in Munich. Um, another sister, uh, younger, was also a fan of Hitler and a groupie of Hitler, as it were. And when when um, the war broke out, she she um, when when um, Germany went to war, she moved to to um, Munich and dined with Hitler. And on the day England declared war on Germany, I mean, sorry, Germany declared war on England. She went to the English garden in Munich and shot herself in the head. Oh my God. Survived in a kind of infantile state, 
Hitler took the best care of her, sent her to the top hospitals, and then put her on a train back to England. There were riots on the docks when, the, when she arrived. And she died a few years later from the effects of her wound. Um, so she was a total groupie, it was unity. Um, Jessica, whose family nickname was Decca, known that way to friends, um, had a, went the opposite way. She, she became a communist, uh, eloped with a friend whom she barely knew, another aristocrat, who was Winston Churchill's nephew, to the Spanish Civil War to report on the war. England, under her father's influence by her father, sent a troop ship to make sure she came to pick her up and take her home, as any good lord would do for his daughter. Right. And and um, she got off the. She and her um, partner and then husband um, got off in southern France and reported on the war from southern France. Um, for, with for the rest of the for a while and then moved back to England when they were afraid as everyone was that England would go fascist because a lot of the aristocracy aristocracy was um were Nazis um fascists um they came to the United States and it was kind of a, a aristocrats tour but they stayed they they right went around the country with letters of introduction to people like Catherine Graham. Um, th these were well-born people and with connections. So they arrived right. with letters of introduction and they became friendly with Catherine Graham who's, and, and her father, who was the publisher of the Washington Post um, and other well-known Americans. Uh, it's a long story and it's all told in the book and I, it's hard to summarize, but she went, he, her husband, when when England declared war on Germany, and they knew which side it would be on in the war, her husband went to um, Canada, joined the Royal Canadian Air Force to fight the fascists, and was killed, um, lost on a mission in World War II, just before Decca was to take off there with her their then daughter. Decca then stayed in New Deal, Washington with some people that um, highborn people, I mean, American aristocracy, as it were, yeah. who were in the um, New Deal administration, the Durs, and um, new people like John Kenneth Galbraith and all of those people from the circles that they moved in, yeah. and ultimately met a radical Jewish attorney whom she married. Jewish attorney at a time when her sisters were two of the most notorious fascists in the world. Um, her, her, the sister who survived the war was, was sent with her husband, Oswald Mosley, to prison by their second cousin, Winston Churchill, who was prime minister. Right. So it was, this, these were all well-born people who um, were on different sides. And um, Decca then um, moved to Oakland, um, San Francisco, uh, joined the Communist Party. She got married to her husband, Bob Truhaft, who became a well-known radical attorney in Oakland. She joined the Communist Party. They both joined the Communist Party for maybe 15 years and um, mostly to do civil rights work in Oakland. They were among the pioneers civil rights pioneers of Oakland. Right. Um, I don't know how far you want me to go with the story. Well, they, a, they didn't, uh, they, didn't they, um, they, were, they refused to testify in the House Anti-American Committee? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was a McCarthy era. And uh, at that point, they were no longer in the party, but they were, they refused on principle to say that they weren't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but Decca had a wicked wit, as all the sisters did. And she really, confused the committee so much they didn't know what to do with her because she kept <laughs> she kept replying facetiously to their comments at one point they asked her whether she was a member of the berkeley tenants unit and she said she thought they were saying tennis club <laughs> <laughs> so she, 
she completely flustered them by saying she doesn't play tennis. <laughs> and just they, they became very frustrated. There was no outcome to that, really. <laughs> and then they were, you know, big supporters of the free speech movement and Cal. And I met Decca. So that you asked me how I got involved. Right. I met Decca um, when she was interested in a project I was working on in, back in the 60s, an investigative journalism project. And called me up and said, I'm so interested in this. Will you come and tell me about it? And so I remained friends, acquaintances with them for decades. Um, they were at my wedding back in 1971. I was at their 50th anniversary years later. And um, they, and when she died, a few years after she died, Bob, her husband, called me one day and said, we like you to do Decca's letters. I said, what letters? I didn't even know she was a, a, a um, voluminous correspondent as in, in the English tradition of waking up every morning and taking care of the day's correspondence. And um, he said, well, I've got some of the letters here. A lot of them are in archives, but if you want to come to the house and take a look, come on by. So I dropped by and I saw these amazing letters to Maya Angelou, who was a friend, to wow. Catherine Graham, who was the publisher of the Washington Post later, celebrated in the, in the Pentagon Papers era. Yeah. Um, these, she had contacts all over the world and friends all over the world. And um, the letters were sh funny, smart, incisive. And I said, yeah, I'm interested in this. Yeah. And then that began a several year project to gather the letters, edit them. They were the book ended up 700 some odd pages, but far too many letters to include. Yeah. Even then, I had to trim it down from four or five, three or four times that size to um, just from the initial candidates. So it, it involved and a lot of footnoting because people need to hear the history behind things. Um. It, so it was a major effort over, I would say, three years and uh, was published by Knopf, very well received all over the world. Oh, yes. And um, unfortunately, never published as a paperback. Maybe that will still come. There's someone who is working that, you know, people don't buy thick hardbacks anymore. And um there's a, a woman who's working on Decca's biography, and there may be some interest in the paperback being issued at that time as a companion to the biography. The, the author of that biography is a well-known scholar and has um, really based a lot of her work on what I did. So she's a, she's a big fan of the letters book too. I would so. love to see it re-released as a paperback because it's it's a wonderful work and her story is very Thank fascinating, you. very fascinating American person. Thank you. Yeah. She also became, I didn't mention this, an investigative reporter right. with a number of books that uh, are a combination of uh, investigative reporting, reporting and cutting wit. <laughs> and re really, she reduced some of her targets to nothing with her caustic wit well i knew her before i knew her story i knew of her from the american way of death which was a huge yes. success yeah the american way of death was was um, a phenomenon in 1963 to such an extent that scrivener the publisher was reordering paper every day because they just right. couldn't keep up with the demand um it was on the new york times bestseller list for i think a year and that's how many people do know her. She's also right. done some memoirs. Um, American Way of Death, death is about the, um, less about death and about the funeral industry and their predatory habits and um, really the scandalous way that they milk, especially low-income families yeah. for elaborate funerals that are not needed no. and elaborate arrangements. So she taking advantage of their grief and she just was withering in her critique. And, and really at, from that point 
um, you can see graphs of embalmments going way, way down. And right. um, it's, it, it had a major impact on the country. Oh, absolutely. Now, you are also a photographer, and you're very well known in the Bay Area for your photography. And you have a uh, upcoming art exhibit at uh, Alliance International University Hurwitz Library. Can you tell us about your um, photography, how you got interested in photography and what you do and why you do it? Yeah, I, I take issue with only one thing there. I'm not so sure I'm a well-known photographer, <laughs> but the exhibit is a major exhibit. It's my first solo show. Um, I've been in a group show that was juried, but not a solo show. So this is a very exciting project for me. Um, I This is a late life passion. I've become much more um, passionate about photography in recent years. Um, I started, it started, I suppose, in my travels when I would take photographs and I would come back and I'd say, you know, some of these are not bad. Um, just, I, I was using a point and shoot. I had never been a much of a photographer as a kid. I dabbled with it, but not much. And, um, and then my, I had grandchildren. I started taking photographs of them and trying to capture their personalities, not just what they looked like, smiling, saying um, cheese for the camera, but you know, trying to really capture who they were. And that was exciting. And we used to print them and put them on a wall. We have a wall full of grandchildren pictures. And over time, I just became more and more interested. I, I uh, would graduate up from point and shoot. At some point, I realized I could get a lot more out of this camera if it were, if I understood manual controls, f-stops and ISO and so forth. And so I challenged myself to buy a manual control camera. Uh, and a friend, meanwhile, a neighbor who got interested in my photography, he was a photographer and said, and was impressed with my eye. And he became like a mentor to me and uh, used to send me late night emails saying, don't forget if your ISO is set at this point, it mean, has this effect and so forth. And he and at some point I said to him, I'm hitting the wall with this camera. I need to get hitting the ceiling. I need to get something a little more with a little more capacity. He, he, he would direct me to the right camera. A simultaneous feature was that I became more disabled as a result of seven spinal surgeries. Right. And um, I felt as, and I was, and I was aging, I'm, I'm 80 years old now. And I felt um, my, my, my range of movement was constricted. I, I couldn't walk well. I often use a wheelchair. I sometimes can walk with a walking sticks for a short distance, cane but I'm definitely constricted and, um, and I felt constricted. And I used to take the photos, the camera with me. It helped me on walks when, because I'm very unstable. It helped me to take my mind off the pain of walking, of being upright and distract me. And um, so it was something I just, took to doing is taking the camera with me and seeing what I could photograph. And, um, and my mentor also said, you, a photographer always has their camera with them because it's the unexpected moments you're trying to capture. And I found that, that the photos I took and that the, the developing my photography felt like a way of combating the constriction I felt from the physical, the physical constriction of the disability, right, um, and an age, it, it it opened things up. It was, I think, older people need and and often find creative outlets late in life, and um, it it seems a compensatory mechanism and a, a salutary one to be free to create and to find and and shoot. And so I just over time I kept. It became more and more important. I started, in addition to going up in cameras, uh, the, my mentor um, challenged me to 
shoot in the raw format, which uh, you know everyone knows JPEGs, but um, there are that JPEG is kind of a approximation of what the camera is, all the information that's coming into the camera. It's an algorithm that decides this is what you mean to say with all this information, this right. light and dark information that we're registering on the sensor. The raw photo is the is much more data. It's everything that the camera has. And then there's raw photo editors that you can <clears throat> um, use to bring out the features of the photo that you would like or not. So it's a more sophisticated, sophisticated way of editing. And these days, editing is a big part of post, post photo, call it post processing. After you take the photo, a lot of what happens is happens no longer in the dark room, but in the computer. Right. And so once you learn uh, raw editing, you're taking it to another level. And um, so I did that. And then he got me on Photoshop and, you know, I developed those skills and found really a wonderful world that I could, a wonderful way of capturing and commenting on the world or, or, or processing it. Um, it used to be that I would go for walks and I would come back and I'd say, well, I didn't see anything worth photographing. Over time, as you your eye becomes acclimated, it, it, and the name of the exhibit at Alliant International University is the attentive eye. You, you, become, you begin to see differently. You see things that you had missed in just walking past it. And um, sooner or later, sooner really i i would stop for flowers or blades of grass or anything that looked interesting in shape and character or the light hit it in a certain way and and i could see something i couldn't see before um when i just sort of generalized what i was viewing instead of looking at particular um particular particularity um and i so I, a number of the photos in the exhibit are macro photos of literally blades of grass, um, but they have a world all their own. And, and when you blow them up, it's almost magical. Uh, and, and you increase your, your you, you become more actively engaged with your environment in a way. So I, I loved it I, and I still do. And I'm excited about the exhibit. I, I love what I love about your um, photography is it reminds me of how much I miss day to day. I, I oftentimes will go on autopilot in my day to day. I get up, I shave, I shower, I drink coffee, I go to work, I leave work, I go home, I go to the grocery store, watch TV, blah, yada, yada. And like, I know that if I stop and take a walk and I actually take the time, I will notice things I didn't notice before. And I think your work really brings that home. Was that your intent, do you think? Yes, or at least it's the effect of what I uh, did. It, 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 I became more conscious of it, of doing that later on. But yes, that's exactly what process I was describing. And in fact, I've used the term, use the term, use a different term, but the term I use is we speed read life. Right. Uh, we, we miss some of the beauty that, and the character of our world by uh, what we have to do. We have to live with habits. You know, we, we as I will say in a talk I'm giving at Alliant, we, we, we can't reevaluate, relearn toothbrushing every night. Right. We have, some of it is just relegated to habit and that's how we survive. But we also need to revive um, reestablish some connection, more immediate connection with the world. And, and that's what I meant by the attentive eye is exactly what you were just describing. Um, um, greater awareness and engagement with and openness to the world. So that there's a great variety in what I see. And that's reflected in the exhibit. It's not a photo. It's not a flower show. It's not a 
buildings or landscape show or a street photography show. It's all of them the above. I really love the beauty in your uh, photography of people as well. You really capture something. I think there's a de there's a definite randomness in a lot of your photos that you catch people unguarded and you see the beauty in people. Was that your intent too, to kind of show like that kind of unposed beauty? I think we all see that in people, but there's a real thrill in capturing it. Yeah. And um, yes, um, I mean, I throw away probably 95% of the photos I take of people um, because I'm looking for that unguarded moment when they are themselves. I, I like to say uh, that, I, that I, I like to capture people acting human as they so often do yeah. <laughs> and um and they you know we all have those unguarded moments when we really are ourselves and authentic and children are less skilled at guarding them than right adults so often children exhibit it much more than adults and a lot of my photos are of children um mostly grandchildren but some that are not and um a number that are not but um adults too you can catch them in a, in a moment and what i want is not the posed moment i don't i don't want the cheese say cheese moment yeah i want to see them be themselves and so often i click the shutter just before or just after someone else might have because it's not what you see when someone poses it's what you see when they're unguarded when they let down their guard and just be themselves and there there's a real beauty in people i love people when they allow themselves to be themselves I, I think one, one thing I really like about your work, especially the work with nature, is that we're oftentimes reminded to go be in nature to kind of help balance our, you know, our serotonin levels and like kind of acclimate, get our brain in a good space. And I think uh, when I look at a lot of your photographs, I always think it's a reminder to get back in nature, the really good stuff I'm missing by not spending time there and not paying attention. And you, I think, remind us of what we're missing with both the nature and the human beings that you photograph. You're reminding us of, of what we're not paying attention to and the stuff that's all around us. And I really think that's very special. Thank you. I, I, it, it's a joy to, to take part in that process. I mean, there's as much joy in taking the photo and capturing something as there is in um, talking about it or seeing it later as a photograph. Um, so I, re I appreciate that. I feel the same thing as, um, and a lot of it is macro. I mean, the, the camera can see some places where we can't, I mean, there right. are some, some grasses or grains that I've photographed just in little in, in the weed strips, um, next to between the sidewalk and the street. And there, if you look closely at some of them, they are graceful gorgeous beautifully designed uh, if you look at the innards of a flower suddenly you see a whole world of organization and of beauty that uh, we really don't suspect is there when we just see it in a field from afar or something it, there's nature has such amazing design and we are a part of it and we we need to feel both the chaos and the design all around us and both the haphazard and the and the beautiful and um, all those calling attention to those freezes a moment freezes the mo a moment and brings it to you in a way that you can't get from only experiencing it yeah Peter, uh, I'm going to put a link on the bio for our listeners, and I'm going to encourage them strongly to go um, look at some of your artwork online. And if they're in the Bay Area, when we have the um, exhibit, I, I'm urging them strongly to come see the exhibit because they're really going to really get a lot out of that. 
I also am going to put links um, in the bio to your two books. So I really want to recommend people uh, look at DECA, The Letters of Jessica Mitford, and also Committing Journalism, The Prison Writings of Red Hog uh, with prison writer Dan Dan Danny M. Martin. So um, Peter, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I really enjoy having you as a guest here. I hope we get to have you back again. I appreciate it, Dean. I, I, and I appreciate your uh, making those connections between different parts of my life and endeavor. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I'll go. That was my conversation with Peter Sussman, author of DECA, The Letters of Jessica Mitford. On Friday, we're going to have chef and restaurateur Tamara Dyson on the program. She'll be speaking with us then. I look forward to talking to Tamara, and I hope you all have a great afternoon and keep cooking.